but I gotta respect a redneck who reads the literature. Okay, you're clear. Stand by for your base. Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. I'm Matt Mendez, and today I'm going to be interviewing a good friend of mine, Nick Matzler. Nick, it's awesome to have you today. Tell us who you are. Thank you, Matt. I'm so excited to be here. My name is Nick Matzler. I am a toxicology fellow in my second year currently here at Rocky Mountain Poison and Drug Safety in Denver, Colorado, and I uh, occasionally work ER shifts at Denver Health in the emergency department. Nick forgot to mention that he also worked in EMS for a period of time before medical school. And we tricked you into coming on today to talk about snakes. Specifically, why why are snake bites important? Do does this really even kill a lot of people? Is this is this really worth an EMT or paramedic caring about? That that's a really good question, I think. You know, snakes are one of the most common venomous creatures that we're going to encounter in North America. You know, for us, they mainly live in the southern United States and the western United States, and they account for roughly 7 to 8,000 bites per year. Now, out of those seven to 8,000 bites, only 10 to 12 or so die per year. However, they actually count for 10 to 44% of those bites as causing long-term morbidity. So it, it is actually an important topic to think about when we think about uh, envenomations here in the US. All right, and so what are the snakes in the United States that really jack people up? That is a fantastic question. You know, there's a lot of snakes throughout the world and a lot of snakes that have much more dangerous venom. But here in the U.S., we have kind of two overall classes of snakes. We have the crotalids, which are a subfamily of the Vipiridae family or the pit vipers. And we have the elapids, which are more commonly known as the coral snakes overall. Now, now the crotalids, those are the folks that make up the rattlesnakes, the copperheads, the cottonmouths, the sort of common snakes that you're used to uh, hearing about. They're called pit vipers because they have these heat sensing pits just behind their nostrils that account for the name. You know, these snakes overall, they tend to be more active in the summer months. And that is clinically important because, of course, we see people wanting to go out and do more activities in their daily life during the summer months. And so this is when we're going to see the cross section between snakes, because of course they want to come out when it's hotter outside, they're much more active. And so that's when we're going to see humans interacting with snakes more commonly. And therefore we're going to see more bites during these months. So about April to September is the range where we really start worrying about snake bites here in the U S. Most of the snakes that you're going to encounter, especially the snakes that are going to cause a lot of harm, are going to be the rattlesnakes. And so rattlesnakes are interesting for a handful of reasons. But one very interesting thing about them is, is literally how their fangs are arranged on their head. So rattlesnakes have fangs that are actually hinged. And so what it allows them to do is it allows them to very quickly change positions. And this allows them to strike in a straight line. And so rattlesnakes can actually strike about 
a third of their body length and distance. And especially when they're coiled, this can be very, very deceptive because you might look at a snake and say, well, it doesn't look very long and you might not give it quite a wide enough berth around the snake. And then all of a sudden they can strike an incredibly long distance and still get you. The fangs are similar to about an 18 gauge needle. They have these paired fangs and they have these amazing venom glands. And these venom glands actually have little muscles attached to them that can pump as soon as they strike a target. So when they strike a target, they're able to penetrate through clothes, through often thin barriers, and and they're able to get their fangs roughly three to four centimeters into your skin. And so they can penetrate through the dermis, into the muscle, into the subcutaneous layer, and then they can pressurize, deliver their venom into you, which can then spread along your muscles through your sub-Q and start causing a lot of problems as they come up. You know, snakes are actually very difficult to see. So depending on the region you're in, they actually have a lot of camouflage. And so just by walking along a trail, you might actually never know that you're about to get struck by a snake. And I hear a lot of people say, well, I'm going to hear the rattle. I'm going to hear the snake before I come across it. And that's going to alert me. And I'm going to be able to avoid this snake. The, the problem is that so only rattlesnakes, as the name implies, actually have the rattles. So the copperheads and the cotton mouse actually lack the rattles, although sometimes they will shake their tails. But even a rattlesnake, again, the more dangerous of these three snakes, sometimes can lose part or all of their rattle season to season. The problem with this then becomes you either may not hear a rattle at all because it's fallen off or the rattle might not sound like what you're used to. So it might actually sound more of like a buzzing sound or a low hum sound. And you may not recognize it as sort of the classic rattle that you've heard on TV before. And so this all leads to you coming in contact with these snakes and causing a setup for a potential strike to occur. Now, there's a lot of common misconceptions when you get envenomated by a rattlesnake. So one that I hear all the time is like, well, are juvenile rattlesnakes, they, they can't control their venom delivery. And so you end up getting a relatively higher amount of venom delivered compared to an adult rattlesnake. Well, this has actually been disproven amongst many studies. So juvenile rattlesnakes control their venom just about as well as an adult rattlesnake does. And so the venom load delivered is about the same. Kind of taking that teleological conclusion, one of the other issues that pops up is that when a child becomes envenomated, people often think they need less antivenom or that they need to be treated differently. But the snake doesn't care what size you are. The snake doesn't know how big you are. The snake doesn't deliver a milligram per kilogram load to your system. And so the problem is that children get the same adult dosed venom as uh, adult does. And so when they come into the emergency department, that plays into how we're going to treat them. It doesn't mean that every single rattlesnake bite results in an envenomation. And about 20 to 25% are either what we call dry bites, meaning no venom has been delivered and simply a puncture of the skin has occurred, or a very minimal amount of venom has been delivered and doesn't end up causing uh, a lot of systemic symptoms or local symptoms actually need to be treated by antivenom. Finally, one of the other things you need to worry about is that, of course, you know, it's very common to be bit on an extremity as you're walking, as you're walking by a snake, especially on the, on the legs or the feet, you know, people that purposely interact with snakes, they end up getting bit on the hand more often. There's actually these things they call rattlesnake roundups where people go and they will compete in a competition with a pit of rattlesnakes where they'll try to see in one minute, how many rattlesnakes can I toss into a burlap bag? Those people get bit on the hands. Uh, and so when you see these envenomations, you can almost guess what the patient was doing just based on where they got bit in their extremities. But if you get bit in 
a major vessel, these people actually have very, very poor outcomes. And there's not very many cases, luckily, of this. But unfortunately, if you are struck in a major vessel, these people oftentimes rapidly develop cardiovascular collapse as well as DIC. Hold up now. Nick Metzler just stole the show. That was five minutes packed full of information that I want to make sure you guys don't miss. So I'm going to summarize all of that in seven key take-home points. Number one, snake bites occur most commonly in the U.S. between the months of April and September when both people and snakes are more active in the outdoors. Number two, rattlesnakes account for the majority of the serious envenomations in the U.S. Number three, rattlesnakes have a hinged fang. Now that's terrifying. This allows them to strike in a straight line approximately one-third the distance of their body length. Number four. There may not always be a rattle before the strike. It may be a snake that either doesn't have a rattle or potentially has lost some of its rattles. That's not always a distinctive feature. Number five. Juvenile snakes can control their venom just as well as an adult snake can. Number six. Kids get the same dose of venom as an adult. This can actually lead to them getting sicker given their relative smaller body mass compared to an adult. Number seven. If someone is unfortunate enough to be envenomated straight into a major vessel, this can lead to rapid cardiovascular collapse. Wow. That's an amazing summary of snakes in the United States. I did not know any of that, and I am now glad that I do know all of that. But I think I have the most important question to ask you, and I just want to get this out of the way. Should I suck the poison out? You know, I'm, I'm so glad you asked that question, Matt, because this is one of the rare times that I know a piece of literature that I can actually quote a direct answer to you based on the title. And literally, we have maybe one of the best titles ever published in a journal article ever. And this was an article published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. And the title of the article is eloquently simple. And it just says, snake bite suction devices don't remove venom. They just plain suck. And the, this was an article published by Dr. Sean Bush, who is a venom expert and very well known in the venom community. And essentially, this is a recap of several studies that were done looking at suction devices, because of course, it, it sort of makes logical sense, right? You get struck by a snake. The problem is there's a local depot of venom. And gosh, if you could get this stuff out, wouldn't it make all the difference in the world in terms of how the patient does. And so this was something that was heavily pursued. And, and one of the only research papers that expressed a positive outcome was actually done in rabbits. And it was only an abstract. There's not even a manuscript that you can go and read. There's literally just an abstract of this paper. And one of the big criticisms is that rabbits have an incredibly small skin and soft tissue. And so it's probably very easy to suck venom out of a rabbit compared to other animals such as humans or pigs or any other or dogs that might get accidentally bitten. And so what they did is this spawned a whole line of research where they looked at these devices year in and year out. And in fact, there's lots of manufacturers that make, quote, venom sucking devices, and they recommend them from a medical perspective. And when we actually study these, we found a lot of fascinating things. So one thing is that it might actually cause you to, to remove less venom than if you did nothing. And where this was demonstrated is a study in pigs in which when they applied these suction devices, all of a sudden the, the tract of the fangs, the wound closed proximally. So those fang tracts actually closed very close to the skin because of all this negative pressure that you applied. And so in fact, you, you extracted very little venom. And when they compared them to the untreated pigs, it actually turned out that you would just ooze more venom out of these tracts if you had left them open 
compared to as when you close them with a suction device. And so it very elegantly showed that this was probably not a good idea. Further still, it demonstrated that when you use these suction devices, you actually encourage that venom to stick around locally. It stays in kind of that suction cup pattern around the area. And after they remove the suction devices, after you know several minutes to a couple hours of trying to apply suction, they actually noticed that this small circular area necrosed off because of all this local venom effect, which is not something that we typically see with snake bites. So the overall findings from this is in fact, they remove very little venom, if any. They probably remove less venom than just leaving the wound open and allowing it to ooze naturally. And at the end of the day, they probably cause more morbidity in the extremity than anything else. So these devices, I can agree with Dr. Bush, they just plain suck. I wouldn't use them. But what about like just making the wound hole bigger with a knife, right? You're, you're a wilderness guy. You got your Swiss Army knife. That's not a knife. And do you just, could you just cut it open and let it ooze out through an even bigger hole? That's a great question, Matt. They've also looked at this because they said, gosh, like maybe what we're doing is we're just not getting enough tissue coverage. And so if we just open up a little bit more surface area, can't we pull more of this venom out? And really what they showed is no, no more venom came out compared to a wound that was just naturally left open. And again, now you've exposed this patient to a higher risk of infection and another incision that's probably going to lead to long-term morbidity more than anything else. So are there any other myths out there about snake bite management that we should know? Yeah. What, one of my absolute favorites is the stun gun. So this very well-meaning missionary physician who set up a clinic down in, I believe, the Amazon had a lot of patients that would show up. And again, in the Amazon, they have much more dangerous snakes that cause long-term mortality. And so patients that were envenomated by these creatures were at very high risk for death. And so when these patients would arrive at his clinic, it wasn't uncommon that he would treat snake bite patients. And unfortunately, some of these snake bite patients didn't do very well. Well, somehow they came up with this idea, well, what if we, what if we shock the poison? What if we shock the poison and we're able to somehow denature these proteins and peptides and carbohydrates that make up this venom milieu? What if we can get rid of all these things by just applying local current to the area and therefore get rid of all this venom so it doesn't hurt the circulation? So a, a venom is a protein and proteins are held together by uh, electrical forces and, and hydrostatic forces. So this dude in the Amazon figures, if I put a bunch of current in there, I can break up those bonds and, and make the venom ineffective. And he tried that. That's exactly right. He, he had that exact line of thinking and bless his heart, he went out and he just started shocking a bunch of people that showed up to his clinic with snake bites. <laughs> and at the end of the day, they, they really sat down and said, my goodness, this seems to work. You know, I'm shocking all these people and they're surviving. You know, I have these other, you know, quote controls that show up and they don't do well. They refuse shock and they die. But I have this whole other cohort of people that, that walk to my clinic and they say, hey, I'm here. I was just envenomated and I, I shock them multiple times and then they do fine. They live and they don't have any long-term morbidity. And in fact, he thought his paper was so compelling that he sent it into the Lancet and the Lancet published his paper. So the so Lancet, the Lancet is a huge paper for the people out there. It's like, uh, it's like a, if you can get a paper published, you're like a big deal in the nerd doctor world. Where are they? I think they're talking about us. No way. 
That's exactly right. And so this nice guy published in one of the biggest journals uh, known to man and this very impressive paper. And he, he spurred on this whole line of research. So suddenly all these researchers got really excited and everybody was shocking people with snake bites. Everybody said, aha, this is finally the magic bullet. You know what? We don't have to deal with antivenom. We don't have to deal with serum sickness and anaphylaxis reactions. You know, we can just shock people and they're going to do just fine. And so over time they started applying this and they said, Hey, we're not we're not able to reproduce these results. You know, these uh, animals are dying and in people, it just seems kind of mean. Uh, and so people are just not able to reproduce the results of this initial paper that was reported that again, was not a randomized control trial, but just a sort of a case series of about 40 odd patients that showed up. Well, some very clever person pointed out in a letter to the editor that my goodness, where was your clinic? And it turned out this person's clinic was probably a few miles away from where most of these people lived. And in fact, the people that were showing up to the clinic that said they had been envenomated by these snakes had, had actually walked several miles and they were 30, 40 minutes out from their envenomation. And when they arrived at this clinic, they were clinically well. And so people that had exercised, had walked several miles, had been 30, 40 minutes post envenomation with these very dangerous snakes that were looking great. They shocked them for fun at this point, And then they did well. But of course they did well because they've already self-selected for the fact that they're going to do well just by virtue of the fact that they could make it such a distance to their clinic. And in fact, even this researcher who initially published his study actually posted a redaction of his study saying, you know what, I accidentally misinterpreted what I saw in this case series and you know, it probably doesn't work. And this is, this is backed up by other research that demonstrates it doesn't work. One of my favorite stories that came out of this is in fact, a gentleman who was out in the semi-wilderness with one of his friends. He had been envenomated by a rattlesnake and he runs up to his friend and he says, oh no, I've been envenomated. I know exactly what to do in this situation. So he hooks himself up with some jumper cables to his truck battery. He has his friend jump in the cab and rev the engine. And of course, exactly what you think happens. Okay, buddy, head down. One, two, three. <laughs> The man is blown backwards into his tree. And so now he is not only suffering from trauma, electrocution, but also the initial envenomation. And this guy is taken to medical care and he actually does just fine. He gets antivenom and he, he lives and he, he gets discharged from the hospital. But I love it because it's a story that demonstrates that when you put these things out in the literature, people are going to read them and they're going to take them to heart and they're going to try them. But I got to respect a redneck who reads the literature. I think it's... That's an amazing story. What's even more amazing is to call uh, someone a rural semi-wilderness person as an eloquent way of uh, dancing around them being a redneck. Uh, I love redneck medicine. Same. Uh, what What about uh, tourniquets? Should, I, should we do like, you know, the cat tourniquet where you clamp it down as if it were a, a femoral gunshot wound or, or I was taught it should be as tight as your watch? Uh, what do we do with those? Yeah. And this, this is a common one I hear as well, and is more of a half truth. And it's sort of a half truth because of where we are located geographically. So in the continental US, as we discussed earlier, you know, we have the pit vipers and we have the elapids as snakes. N none of these snakes are terrible in terms of causing mortality. And when we apply these tourniquets in these particular snake bites, the problem is that when you're envenomated, the venom that's delivered by these snakes 
the elapids aside, but the, the crotalids, which are much more far and away the snakes we deal with, when these snakes envenomate you, the venom travels along the lymphatic channels. And so when we occlude the lymph system, which even a pressure bandage is going to occlude the lymph system, so let alone a tourniquet that's really going to hold everything in there, what we see is actually worsened outcomes for that limb because what we're doing is we're effectively trapping the venom in that extremity. And because we trap that venom in the extremity, down the road, when they finally get the tourniquet taken off, they get appropriately treated in the hospital with antivenom, what we see is more myonecrosis, more damage to that extremity, and more long-term morbidity coming from uh, these treatments. Now, this is not the case if you're in Australia, if you're in Africa, if you're in parts of South America, because in those regions, they have snakes that have different venom makeups. And the problem becomes in those countries, if you allow any venom into the systemic circulation, you might have a very bad outcome because of neurotoxicity and other things like that. And so in those cases, applying a pressure bandage or a tourniquet might be the right thing to do. But if you're in the US, for the most part, you should never apply a pressure bandage or a tourniquet to any wound because you're only going to cause increased morbidity. Let me let me see if I can understand that mechanism uh, as a Neanderthal. So, the lymph system is an even lower pressure system than the venous system. So, if you put anything on that, you're going to stop flow, and then it's going to leak out and cause more damage by leaking out than if it were allowed to travel in the lymph system unimpeded. That's exactly right. So, we we actually want the venom to travel through the lymph system unimpeded. And so, in fact, what we recommend in the field for these patients, kind of like what you should do as opposed to apply the tourniquet, is you should splint the limb in place. And usually, I recommend personally splinting the limb below the level of the heart. So now, when you come into the emergency department, we're going to do the exact opposite. We're going to have the person raise their extremity above their heart. We're going to try to encourage that venom to travel along the lymphatic system. So we're going to have them, you know, if it's in the lake, we're going to have them get up and walk and mobilize on that extremity. If it's in the upper extremity, we're going to have them use that extremity to try to encourage the muscles to pump those lymph channels into your systemic circulation. But the reason for that is because we can bind it with antivenom. So if I safely get antivenom into you, that means there's fab fragments floating around ready to bind that venom that's in you. And so what I want is I want that venom to get into the systemic circulation so I can bind it up so I can take care of it. Because these fab fragments, they aren't going to make it into the muscle. They're not going to go into the sub-Q tissue. They're just going to stay in the circulation. And so that's where I want to put the venom. But if you're pre-hospitally, I'm kind of stuck in this odd place where I don't want you to trap the venom in the extremity because I don't want the extremity to suffer increased morbidity. So I don't want a leg to myonecrose and then for you to have long-term trouble with walking or long-term pain or arthritis or things like that. I want you to be able, your system to be able to pump that along the lymphatic channel, but I don't necessarily want to encourage it just in case you're going to get bad systemic symptoms. So usually what I recommend is that you just splint the limb in a position of comfort and you hold it below the level of the heart. Now, of course, this only counts for extremities. And while most bites occur in the extremities like the hands, the arms, the legs, the feet, we do see some torso strikes. We see head strikes. We see neck strikes. We see tongue strikes. Wow. Tongue strikes. Uh, name of my next sex date. These tongue strikes, they come from uh, great videos of people trying to like interact with snakes in weird ways. They're trying to kiss the snake and things like that. And you can exactly guess what happens when you get bit in the tongue and you get wild edema in the tongue and this becomes an airway disaster. And so if you get struck anywhere in the proximal 
torso, the arms, the head, the neck, especially the tongue, you need to be ready to intubate these patients early because they're going to have extreme edema because you can imagine when we see an arm that gets struck that swells up to enormous proportions if you get struck in the face same thing's going to happen and that's overall going to result in likely loss of airway and maybe an inability to even intubate from above resulting in the need to do a cricothyrotomy so i have a, a question about the the lone hiker you know on a 3 mile trail should they wait in place to get splinted and get extricated with the the limb hopefully below their heart or should they should they hike out if that's even an option obviously if their only choice is to hike out cuz they don't have service then they have to hike out there's no choice but if they have the choice is there is, is there any official recommendation from anybody or do you have a personal opinion that's a great question. You know, one of the kind of jokes of treating snake bites is the best treatment for a snake bite is a cell phone and a helicopter. And so when you're trapped out in the middle of the wilderness, if you are in a position where you think you can get a hold of care, meaning your cell phone's working, it's in range, and that you think you're accessible by, you know, any kind of transport, whether it's ground or whether it's air, then probably the right thing to do is to call in the troops and sit tight and just wait for help to arrive. But as you pointed out, if you're in the middle of nowhere and you don't have that luxury, you're not in cell service, or it's an area where you're like, nobody's going to be able to reach me, the right thing to do is calmly hike out. You, you don't need to run. You don't need to jog. You just calmly walk out. And even though you're bitten in the lower limb, you're walking on that limb, you're muscle pumping the stuff through the lymphatics, again, it is awfully rare to die of an envenomation. And so... The main thing is that you get to help as quickly as possible. And so if you can, try to relax and try to calmly walk as far as you can until you can get into care. Awesome. Okay. So we talked about what you shouldn't do. Um, and we talked a little bit about extrication, but what should we do as a standard for first aid in snake bites? That's right. So the, the main thing that you want to do is like we talked about, once you've identified a snake bite, one of the best things you can do is do some basic first aid on the wound. Sometimes these wounds will ooze because of the coagulopathy that the venom can induce. So you can put a bandage on there. That's totally fine. Splint the extremity in place if it was an extremity. And I prefer below the level of the heart personally. And then the next step of the process is just to know about the other problems that can arise. And so while snake bites are usually fairly low mortality, where we do get into trouble is some of this venom can cause systemic hypotension or an anaphylactoid reaction, or in some of my favorite people that handle snakes every single day that have been bitten many times in the past, it can cause true anaphylaxis because they've been exposed to the venom before. And so now they've built IgGs against them and they can cross-link those IgGs the next time. And now they're really in trouble with anaphylaxis. So the next big step is if you encounter any hypotension, and again, it may not be this true anaphylaxis where you have multiple symptoms It may or systems involved. It may just be hypotension. If you see that, administering epinephrine in similar dosing to how you would anaphylaxis. So IM epi is totally reasonable at this point. And then if it's within your protocol, put somebody on a dirty epi drip if they have persistent hypotension, because this is going to be the best presser choice in these situations. And again, antivenom is the ultimate treatment, but we're not going to carry that on the rig. So getting somebody quickly to care while doing supportive care. So fluids is appropriate, dirty epi drip or epi as needed for their hypotension, and then splinting the wound in place and driving real fast. Awesome. 
thank God we are in America, not Australia or Africa, right? And we don't have to worry about any of those really bad snakes that live in those continents. Ah, I just, I, I wish that was the case. Unfortunately, you know, we have a large contingent of folks that are very interested in collecting exotic snakes. And yes, depending on the state you're in, there are different laws governing whether or not you can own certain snakes. But a lot of these collectors get their snakes from swap meets, from these rattlesnake roundups that we talked about before, where people just exchange exotic snakes and they end up with these snakes and they live with them in their house as pets. The problem with those snakes is that you may have never heard of the snake before. And when somebody gets bit, they may be somewhat reluctant to tell you about it or to seek care. But if you are called to a snake bite in somebody's home, one of the best questions you can ask is, what kind of snake was this? Because if they tell you, hey, I collect exotic snakes and this was an exotic snake, it's very important that you get the name of that snake. Because again, I want you to keep yourself safe. So you you don't want to encounter the snake yourself, but I'd like to find out what the snake is because it, it guides what kind of antivenom we have. And there's actually some venom repositories or venom libraries within the US that we have access to where we can get specialized antivenom shipped to any given hospital to help us with people who have been envenomated by exotic snakes. So in fact, in Florida, the paramedics actually are in charge of this venom library. And so when you are in Florida, if you have any kind of snake bite, whether it's a good old fashioned rattlesnake or crotalid, or whether it's a lapid that happens to live in Florida, or whether it's a exotic snake or a zoo snake, oftentimes you can find the antivenom in these libraries and the paramedics and firefighters are actually the ones that help coordinate bringing that antivenom all throughout the state, as well as actually to several other states within the US. In fact, one of the favorite stories people tell is the only airplane in flight during 9-11 was a small aircraft carrying antivenom to another state. Wow. Would you be able to tell in the field like, a, is there a different reaction that these uh, exotic snakes will, will cause as opposed to the slow oozing with the leaking and necrosis that ours tend to cause? You're definitely right. You may. And it, and it may be tricky and it depends. A lot of exotic snakes carry more exotic venoms that can cause neurotoxicity and other toxicities that we don't commonly see with our snakes here in the continental US. And so you may be clued in by just severity of illness or by paralysis or other things like that that came on very, very quickly, but you may not actually know exactly because it may just be a very sick patient you come across. You may actually be the last person to be able to ask, ask this patient a question. And so you being able to say, hey, do you collect any snakes? Were there any exotic snakes in your house? You might be the last person to gather this piece of information before the patient is unable to answer any more questions when you bring them into the hospital. And so this is really the most important thing you can do. Now, now it's not to say I want you to bring the snake in. And it's not that I don't love to see snakes or I want to you know, see what kind of snake it is. It's just nine times out of 10, bringing the snake into the healthcare department doesn't matter. Because again, in the US, we have great antivenoms that cover all our snakes. We don't have to worry about it. It doesn't matter whether it was a copperhead or cotton mouth or exactly what type of rattlesnake it is. It just doesn't matter. And again, 
number one, you need to keep yourself safe. And in fact, even snakes that have been decapitated, sometimes people feel compelled to bring that decapitated head in. And in fact, the just the natural innate reflexes of that snake head can still envenomate you. And there's actually case reports of emergency service providers becoming envenomated from a decapitated snake head. And now we have two patients, both you and the patient that was initially found. That's terrifying. Um, if this is, if you think you have one of these exotic snakes and you're on scene, is this a case where EMS calling the poison center from the field is encouraged to, to speed up that transfer process or does that differ state by state? I think this is one of those rare circumstances where calling the poison center and at least alerting us to the case can really help prep the incoming emergency department. Because if it is an exotic venom we might be dealing with, like if you know, hey, this person collects exotic snakes and they're dealing with X, Y, or Z snake, it is going to take us time to get the antivenom. And the sooner we get that ball rolling, the better. You know, one of the other repositories of venoms is actually the zoos. So our local zoo carries antivenom for all the snakes that it keeps in captivity. And so it allows us, you know, if you happen to keep that same snake, maybe we can even borrow it from the local zoo as opposed to waiting for it to fly in by airplane. Now, when zoo workers work with snakes, it's actually really interesting because what they do is they wear a little tag on their chest. And so anytime they sort of, quote, check out a snake, they put a little tag on them. And now suddenly if this worker is found down, EMS arrives and they can say, aha, they're wearing this exact tag of snakes. So even though we can't find the snake, we know what they were bit by. And again, these zoos usually carry the antivenom that's needed to take care of any specific snake bite. And so the zoo will actually give you as EMS, they will hand you this vial of antivenom to take with you to the emergency department. So I would say one of the most important things you can do is obviously bring that antivenom with you, but more globally, whether it's an exotic snake or a normal snake that we find here in the U.S., one of the most important things is to open your presentation with this patient was bit by a snake. So the entire room can frame exactly what's going on and we know exactly what the next steps are that need to be taken. Awesome. Uh, is there anything else in 2022 that we should know about snakes? Can snakes get COVID? That's that's a great question. I you know I haven't encountered many coughing snakes yet, but you know COVID manifests in uh, myriad ways. So uh, you know maybe they're feeling bad out there, and I just don't know it. But I, I think to answer your question, one of the super interesting things about venom in general is there's this whole field of what they call venomics, which is like this fancy term that is like the genetic variation in venom that we see. And this genetic variation isn't just generation to generation. It's actually season to season and can even depend on what the snake eats. And so every single year that we see snakes and snake envenomations, the venom milieu is slightly different. So the proteins and peptides and carbohydrates and metalloproteases and all these fun enzymes that make up snake venom, they actually change year to year in quite dramatic ways. And in fact, here in at least Colorado, we have seen more patients become hypotensive this season than I would say in the last 10 years put together. And this is just in the first few weeks of sort of what I would consider snake bite season. And so it sure seems like there's likely some change in the venom overall that is causing more hypotension in patients than we've ever seen before. And so I, I hope this doesn't persist until next year, and it likely won't because it's going to change year to year to year. But for right now, certainly it makes me concerned that we're seeing more sick patients with snake bites than we ever have. That is, that is crazy and concerning. Uh, and 
one of the more interesting things I've heard in a while. That was an amazing talk on snakes and and the venom and genomics or venomics or whatever the heck it's called. Can you bring this all home for us? Is there like how would you summarize this into take home points for a firefighter, paramedic, or EMT or wilderness first responder uh, dealing with this issue? Absolutely. Again, you guys are the first line. You're always going to be in these dangerous situations. So the first thing is keep yourself safe. Uh, I I don't want one patient to turn into many. And so I want to make sure that you guys are not in danger of being bit by any snakes, especially exotic snakes or anything else like that. So once you've made sure that you're safe, when you have a patient, the big ticket items are the ultimate treatment is antivenom. So they need to get to the hospital. In the meantime, Don't try any suction devices. Don't try to shock your patients with your defibrillator. Don't try any of these fancy things. Just simply splint the wound in place and leave it alone. I prefer below the level of the heart, and I prefer just to drive quickly to the hospital. When you see hypotension, treat it aggressively and treat it with epinephrine. Pretend like what you're seeing is anaphylaxis, even though it doesn't look like that because this is most likely an anaphylactoid reaction. So aggressive epinephrine is going to help keep that patient stabilized until they can get to the hospital. Finally, depending on the location of the bite, you might need to be dealing with the airway in a very aggressive way. So if you're seeing massive edema because of a proximal snake bite in the neck, the head, the proximal extremities, that is a reason to potentially take the airway early if you have RSI in your kit or to get ready to do a cricothyrotomy because that's the last option you have when you have such significant edema. And then of course, remember to tell the emergency department team, this is a snake bite. So we can appropriately frame what's going on. We can get the antivenom ready. And if you happen to know this is an exotic snake, hopefully you've either brought antivenom with you from the zoo where you pick this patient up because they are a worker or coming from home, you ask them this question before they finally passed out. And now we know it's an exotic snake and we can start the process of getting that antivenom flown in to treat the patient. I have had it with these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane. Everybody strap in. I'm about to open some fucking windows. I love redneck medicine. <laughs>